day to a very sad lesson uh, because in the four lists of the Gospels, which are given to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then in Acts, Judas is always last, and he's almost kind of always remembered with a, with a note of sorrow or even rage on the part of the disciples because he was not who he claimed to be. As we kind of get into this, you'll remember, of course, uh, Vacation Bible School and Captain Romeo. So don't give it away if you know who Captain Romeo is, because we always ask ourselves, we have a lot of fun with that as we drive the kids back and forth, who is really under that mask? Who is Captain Romeo? Anyway, Captain Romeo is doing something, uh, there's, there's a word in the Bible, it comes from two words, hupo and krites, hupo krites. You can kind of hear an English word there, hypocrites, right? It comes from a word meaning under a mask or judging under a mask. And, and you've seen old pictures of theater where they have like these, a mask with straps on it and a mask with straps on it. One is a happy face, one is a sad face, you know what I'm saying? And people in acting would wear these masks and you're at a party and you're like, or not a party, but you're at the theater watching and you're saying, I think that might be Jim behind that mask. And you're trying to judge who it really is underneath there. And the word hypocrites became what English word? A hypocrite. And, and the point is, you're looking at a person who is so good at disguising their actions that it's almost like you're, is that really who they are? Are they sincerely, they're, they're not sincerely the person, they're, they're acting, they're pretending. The word came to mean this in the Bible. It's used a couple of times, the word hypocrites. It means one who acts as a counterfeit, someone who assumes or speaks under a false identity or a feigned character. So in many ways, we could say that Captain Romeo is a hypocrite. He's acting, he's pre or she is acting, uh, pretending to be someone that they, he or she, is not. I want to give you some information. We'll jump right into this and give you six quick things about what a hypocrite is. And, and you can tell by where we're going that we believe that Judas was a hypocrite. But before we even get to him, I want us really to agree together as if we could lay hands on each other's hands and say, okay, we all agree that we're going to examine our lives this morning to see whether or not I am a hypocrite. Not whether or not Derek is a hypocrite or Karen is a hypocrite, but whether I am. Because it's real fun and easy to point out other people's problems. But let's agree to examine ourselves. So six quick things. This is just kind of a free sermon right at the beginning. Six quick things that hypocrites do or hypocrites are. And we're going to look at a few passages and I'll quote some others. Number one. Hypocrites do spiritual deeds so others will see them. Hypocrites do their spiritual deeds so others will see them. And there's several places here in Matthew, and if you just want to jot the scriptures down while we read them, or if you do want to try to look at them together, we'll, we'll land in, a, in one main passage in a minute. Matthew 6, verse 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they might be seen by men. Down in Matthew 6, verse 15. Uh, no, that's not the right verse. Uh, 6, uh, 16. Uh, do not be like the hypocrites when they're fasting because they disfigure their faces so that they might appear to men to be fasting. I want everyone to know my spiritual deeds. Matthew 23, 14 says they make long prayers for a pretense. Hypocrites do spiritual deeds to be noticed by others. And frequently they're not doing any spiritual deeds in private. Because they want others to see what their spiritual deeds are. That's what hypocrites do. Number two, hypocrites point out others' sins and don't deal with their own. 
Hypocrites point out others' sins and don't deal with their own. So if you're a check mark already on, chep- on, on hypocrites number one, like you do spiritual deeds to be seen by others, you're in danger of being a hypocrite. If you point out other sins and neglect your own, you're in danger of being a hypocrite. Matthew 7, verse 5 says this, Hypocrites, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. But hypocrites often do this, and I think what you'll see is Judas does this a lot. Judas in his life does this a lot, and maybe we do. We love to, to rail on other people's sins. Can you believe, fill in the blank, with whoever you know and whatever they did? And meanwhile, you ignore yours, which happens to be a tree trunk sticking out of your face, and they have a small speck of dust in theirs. Your problem is huge, and it's not an issue. But their problem is very small, but you're quick to point those out. That's what a hypocrite does. Thirdly, hypocrites are not sincere in their desire to learn. Hypocrites are not sincere in their desire to learn. We don't have to turn there because we're now we're getting outside the Sermon on the Mount passage, but Matthew 25, verses 7 to 18, some people came to Jesus and said, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? But they weren't really wanting to know the answer to the question. The passage tells us they just wanted to trick Jesus, and Jesus called them hypocrites. Hypocrites are not sincere in their desire to learn. They're doing everything they do for a show. They come and sit in a service because they know it's important that others see them doing that, and they have, an, they have a need to keep up outward appearances, but they have real no desire to learn. They ask questions in Sunday school or, or of their coworkers or of their family members only to make themselves seem spiritual or because they want to trick or deceive. They're never asking questions out of a sincere desire to learn. Is that you? If it is, you're a hypocrite. Number four, hypocrites ignore heart issues. Hypocrites ignore heart issues. Matthew 23, 23 Jesus in this awesome passage where he's con- uh, condemning the Pharisees for their, for their hypocritical nature says, you will tithe on your vegetables, you will tithe on your spices, you will tithe on your herbs. Like you're so, the minute aspects of the law you're so concerned about. And then he says this in 23:23 of Matthew, you neglect weightier matters. You don't act with justice. You don't show mercy. You don't have faith. Who cares if you're tithing on your, on your, uh, on your herbs, on your dill. I don't know, remember what the herbs are that he mentions there in that passage, but you're ignoring heart issues. It ties in with number five. Hypocrites are concerned only about outward appearances, only what the outward is. They don't care about, it kind of goes right along with number four about their heart issues. They care only about their outward appearances. Again, Matthew 23, Jesus says, the outside of the cup is beautiful, but the inside of the cup is dirty. On, on my uh, on my. In my bedroom at home, I have a gift that someone gave me. I don't know if Leah gave it to me or not. I can't remember. It's a Daffy Duck mug. And I haven't looked at it in a long time. And since I've kind of set up an office here, I thought, maybe I'll bring that in. I kind of looked inside, and the bottom of it was just, the outside looked gray. I mean, it looked just like Daffy, nice yellow beak on it, just beautiful. I just love it. And inside, there's just gunk all in it. And wouldn't that be something if I went and just took a drink? out? This is That cup, that Daffy Duck mug, is exactly what Jesus was talking about. It wasn't talking about the Daffy Duck bug, but he was talking about that in principle, right? You, you shine up the outside, so presentation is everything. But if we could look inside, we would note that it's full of dirt. He mentions that again in, in another uh, analogy when he says, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're like the cemetery that has the, the shrubbery all trimmed and, and the flowers are planted and, and the bird mess is wiped off the stone and it's beautifully painted. But if you were to go six feet under... There's disgusting, rotten flesh down there. That's what a hypocrite is. Outwardly, we all look pretty nice this morning. 
Outwardly, we have the appearance. We, we do our spiritual deeds outwardly, but inside is our heart filthy and wretched? That's what a hypocrite is. Maybe that's you. And number six, and last, hypocrites are full of words that seem right, but are actually far from God. Hypocrites are full of words that seem right, but are actually far from God. Jesus in Mark chapter 7, verse 6, quoted from Isaiah 29, when he said this, that these are people who Isaiah said in truth, draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts from me. Great thing this morning. Wonderful grace of Jesus. Right? Honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Remember in Isaiah 1, I was thinking this during Derek's excellent Sunday school. If you missed Sunday school this morning, it was excellent. He was mentioning about uh, the one question I wrote down on my worksheet that Derek had was, is my worship pleasing or repulsive to God? And I wrote down Isaiah 1. Remember what he says in Isaiah 1? I think he also says it in Amos. I'm sick of your feasts. I'm sick of your sacrifices. I'm sick of your rituals. I'm sick of all that stuff because there is no reality to your relationship with me. You're doing everything on an outward level. That's what hypocrites do. There's another word in the Bible. It's not hypocrites. It's anapocrites. And it's an important word. It means free from hypocrisy or free from pretense. You know what it means? It means someone who is inexperienced in the art of acting. <laughs> it's like, could you imagine going to the theater? Heart, who goes there, right? And, and someone who, you know, like, that person is terrible. They're ter that's what a hypocrite, that's what we as believers should, should be. Just so free from any sort of pretense, free from any sort of falsehood, unfeigned, genuine, real, sincere just like we do with Captain Romeo or the Lone Ranger. Who was that masked man? Are we wearing a mask to hide our true identities? Some of us are so good at it that everyone would say, oh, yeah, that's a true believer in Jesus. Sure, they follow Christ. She's a believer. He knows the Lord. We might even say that about people. And yet they are so good at their deception, nothing could be further from the truth. This is such an important lesson for everybody. Because there's really two types of hypocrites, and, and I would say most of them fall into the, they're, they're just, they're deceiving others. Some may be self-deceived. Maybe there is a, a, a level of self-deception, but I think we're talking about people here who know exactly what they're doing, and they're pretending. And so none of those people could be greater than the, the 12th disciple, Judas Iscariot, who is the subject of our study this morning, and the title of the lesson is Master, Make Me Sincere. Master, Make Me Sincere. I thought about make me real, make me genuine, but sincere, I think, fits. And all of the other disciples were positive when we left, right? All the other disciples were great. Uh, from Peter all the way down to our three uh, very obscure disciples last time, James, Simon, and Judas, the other Judas. As far as being dependent or serving or zealous or loving or believing or open or extravagant or assured or faithful, all those terms that we use. And now we come to a very sad one. And, and I read something in a, in a book about Judas this week, that as we study Judas, we come very close to prying open the works of the devil. It's astonishing at school when I'll talk about Judas sometimes, and people will say, well, wasn't Judas a Christian? Wasn't he? Kids, kids you know, are asking genuine questions, and you think, this guy was so far from it that he, the Bible tells us he was a tool of the devil, that Satan inhabited him. And so as we look at him, it's very sobering for us because this was not a guy who was outside the realm of the apostolic company. This was a guy right in there who everybody thought 
was a, was a true follower of Jesus Christ. And there's a great danger for that in our lives as well. Judas, just kind of introductory thoughts about him before we get into him. Judas is always mentioned last in the list, and he's almost always mentioned with Judas, as this, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. The other 11 and the writers of the scripture could not disconnect the man from his treachery. That's what he's known for. And we must not let that, though, be the only fact that we walk away with, that he did that deed. Why did he do it? How could he do that? And what lessons do we take from it? His name is Judas Iscariot. If you've wondered what that meant, it simply means he was a man of Kerioth. Uh, that was a place, if you look in Joshua 15.25, a, a location or a town in southern Judah. And so Judas was the only disciple not from Galilee, so he was kind of an outsider. And maybe that made it easier for him to pretend. Uh, or maybe it made him easier, f easier for him to go ahead and betray Christ because he wasn't connected like the others. His father's name was Simon. Uh, and can you imagine this father? Uh, we don't know anything about him from Scripture other than his name. But I can't imagine that this father has much to be proud of in regards to his son's life. Let me look at these. I, I, I know I have lists today in the sermon. I don't usually do that. We've already gone through a list of what hypocrites are like, and I don't want you to just, okay, I got them all down, but we want to evaluate. But what we learn about Jesus or Judas just from the names that he is called in the Bible, there's five of them. The first one, as I mentioned, is he is always known as the one who betrayed Jesus, the one who betrayed. It's almost always used when his name is mentioned. That word means to deliver to the power of someone. He's also called a traitor, which is just someone who acts as a betrayer. Uh, biblically speaking, uh, Judas is the man whom j betrays Judas, and he has been forever associated with that, that idea. Um, we have kind of updated that with, like, a don't be a Benedict Arnold, but for 2,000 years we could say you're a Judas if you are a betrayer of someone. And the disciples could not think of him without that phrase. He is the one who stabbed the Lord in the back, the betrayer. Second, he is also called one of the 12. He's almost always called one of the 12. I, I did a little search for this, and one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times in the New Testament, Judas Iscariot is referred to as being one of the 12. And you say, well, what's the big deal? He was. Mark 26, 14, one of the 12 called Judas. Matthew 26, 47, behold, Judas, one of the 12, came with swords. Mark 14, verse 10, Judas, one of the 12, went to the chief priests. Mark 14, verse 20, this is astonishing. Right during the Last Supper, Jesus said, about the betrayer, it is one of the twelve. Now, why am I making a big deal of that, that he's called one of the twelve? I find it fascinating because it's not bad enough that the enemy, that there was an enemy who was a betrayer and a traitor, but it came from inside the circle. He was one of us. And not just one of us, he was one of the twelve. Remember when Jesus came down the mountain, Luke 6, we just left off on that passage when we started this summer series. He goes up on the mountain to pray. He's making this important decision because many people are following Jesus. He's going to choose 12, and he chooses this man. We're going to talk about this in a second, too. But he was from inside the group. And I think the writers of Scripture are trying to point out a lesson to us. And I'm going to say it at the end, but the lesson of Judas stands for us as a warning. As a warning that we not follow in those same footsteps. Closely connected to Christ, appearing to be a true follower, and eventually just kind of wandering away. Maybe not doing such a heinous act as Judas did, but it's almost like we could say, they were one of the church. They were one of, the, they were one of Grace Baptist. They were one of the followers. And that's what they said about Judas. Thirdly, 
and it, it's amazing how uh, our lessons this morning are, we're going to go right to the lesson that you went to this morning on, on Sunday school on Mary of Bethany. But in that passage in John 12, thirdly, he's called a thief. Again, think of his father, Simon. Oh boy, you know, my son, the one who betrayed. Uh, he was one of the 12 and he, he betrayed. He's a thief. Says he was the treasurer of the group, but that he often took from the bag. Disciples didn't know that at the time. John's writing much later. You think they, they think if they knew that at the time, they'd make him the treasurer? It's like, here you go, John, you be our treasurer. We all know you're a thief, but you be our treasurer. He was so good at tricking everybody that he was entrusted with one of the most important jobs. But he kept taking it. Fourthly, he's called the son of perdition in John 17, verse 12. That phrase just means a man who is doomed to destruction. I'm sure Simon went around saying that about his son. Hey, you hear about my boy Judas? He's the son of perdition. You know, there's only two people in the Bible ever referred to by that name, a man who is doomed to destruction. One is Judas. Who's the other? The Antichrist. The Antichrist. As he's indwelt by Satan, right? Nice company to be in, huh? Wouldn't you like to be Judas? Hey, we're part of a special group. Only the two of us are called the son of perdition. It's me and you, Antichrist. Fifthly, that weren't bad enough. We're kind of going in stages here. He's called a devil in John 6, 70, which was the passage... Uh, that we read earlier, Jesus says, did I not choose all of you and one of you is a devil? Actually, if you look at that translation in the original a little more closely, it could be translated, one of you is the devil. One of you is the devil. Judas was not just mistaken in his intentions. Judas was a tool used, tool of Satan used as an adversary of Christ who was working from the inside out as a complete fraud, a phony, a fake. He may have been originally attracted to Jesus for personal gain by the idea, idea of a political Messiah, but he never truly heard the message of Christ. Some people said he gave his life to Jesus because he traveled with them for three years. He gave his life to Jesus, but he never gave his heart to Christ. I want us to do something for the last little bit, and that's to look at two passages. Can we do that? Matthew 26 and John 12. So if you could open to both of those passages and kind of be ready to flip to both because uh, they're parallel passages and one gives us information that the other doesn't. And so... We won't look flip a lot, but I do want you to have both open, so if I refer to one, you can glance down. John 12 and uh, Matthew 26. Both are referring to the same story, which we learned about in Sunday school. Uh, it's the Last Supper, and Mary of Bethany comes to anoint Jesus' feet uh, with the alabaster box of ointment. And what we're going to do as we look at Judas is examine his character. And again, I, I hate to just keep doing lists, but this is the way I think. Seven things the Bible reveals about his character. We already learned what hypocrites are and what they do. And here's more specifically what Judas's life is characterized by. And we'll go through them fairly quickly uh, so we can get to some application at the end. And again, the whole point is not to say, oh, Judas was a crummy guy. It's to say, am I a hypocrite? Am I like Judas? Let's read the passages, okay? Uh, let's first read the Matthew 26 passage. And uh, I think we'll just read that one because we'll refer back to the John 12 one uh, from time to time. But let's just read the Matthew 26 one, starting at verse number 1, because then we can refer back to it after we've read it all. The most important thing we can do is read it. So, Verse 1, it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and scribes and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. 
And just as an aside here, no matter what the people wanted, not during the feast, you know what God was going to do? Going to kill his son on the exact day he wanted to, which was right in the middle of the feast, right on the very day of Passover. So even, and we're going to talk about the God's sovereignty and man's responsibility here in a minute, but God is in charge of these events, no question about it. Verse 6. When Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as, she, as he sat at the table. Or as we learned this morning, as he kind of leaned or reclined at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? Now notice in verse 8, it says, the disciples saw it. Flip to the John passage quickly, and keep your finger, of course, keep doing that flipping if you can. In the John passage, notice it's Judas, the one that immediately says that. Verse 4, John 12, 4. Same story. Mary took the ointment, and verse 4 says, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, here it is again, who would betray him, I told you they never leave that out, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, in the Matthew passage, it shows us that, that he immediately jumps on that. Let's keep reading the Matthew passage, okay? Just pointing that out to you. Verse uh, Eight, his disciples saw it, this is Matthew 26, 8, so we don't get confused. When his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? This fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you do not have the poor with you always, but me, excuse me, for you have the poor with you always, but me, you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. And Jesus' prophetic words are prophetic even this morning as we're talking about her now. Verse 14, then one of the twelve, there's another phrase, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. And so from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Just, just by way of, uh, for our own understanding, this is Tuesday of the Lord's Passion Week. Okay? So uh, some people say it was Monday that he rode in on the, on the horse, or excuse me, on the donkey uh, is the triumphal entry. Some people believe it's Sunday, whatever. This is on Tuesday uh, afternoon, and then uh, Tuesday evening he, he runs out and does this uh, deed. I think. I'll look at that in just a second. It may have been Wednesday. Either way, it's, 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 the, it's the middle of Passion Week. One of the things we learn about Judas here, number one, is his greed. We're going to go through these very quickly. His greed. We already pointed out that he was a thief. I mean, what kind of guy is this? Kind of like the 4-H treasurer who steals the dues. I mean, this apostolic company isn't going to have millions of dollars, but whatever they do have for their own sustenance or food, he must have felt like he deserved this. And secondly, tied in with that, we learn that his, about his deception. So we learn that he's greedy and that he's deceptive. That's number two. We should have taken this and sold it to the poor. He had no intention of doing that. He just thought, oh, a year's wages, that will fill our coffers, and then I can fill my pockets. That was his desire. But he's got to deceive everybody by putting on this act, and notice how good he is, because the minute he says in John 12, the whole story is mixed together for us, when he says in John 12, we could have sold this money, all the other disciples jump in with him. Judas has a little bit of, in, in a sense, leadership there. Like they're willing to go along with what he says because to them, he's one of them. He's a true follower. He has good intentions, but in actuality, he is deceptive. Thirdly, besides his greed and his deception, 
We learn about his anger. His anger. Now, why do we say that? Here's a question for you to ponder. How long had Judas been considering this deed? The Bible doesn't say. I wonder how long he'd been considering whether or not he would betray Christ. We know that all the way back in John 6, which is why I read that passage this morning, when Jesus gave him the bread of life discourse, he says, there are some of you that do not believe, and one of you is a devil, is the devil. Could it be that even at that moment he was already considering that? Um, his anger here, and so we wonder, well, what, when is he going to do this, or, or how long has he been thinking about this? Well, the minute he finally goes to the chief priest was when? The minute he finally goes to visit the chief priests and scribes, think with me, was when? When did he finally do this? Answer out loud. When did he finally do this? Don't, not date, not time. At what moment? What prompted it? And, and what specifically prompted him to run out and... Why is he angry? That's what I'm saying. He's angry. And he's, he leaves that room. Slams the door. Walks a mile and a half, probably not like that, but walks a mile and a half to be from Bethany to Jerusalem. Chief priest here, what will you give me if I deliver him to you? Why was he so mad? Because Jesus rebuked him. Because Jesus rebuked him. Yeah, he wanted that money, but remember Judas stood up and said, why didn't we give this to the poor? Well, Jesus rebukes him. You're going to have the poor all the time. Me, you're not going to have. And it's a gentle rebuke, very gentle. One thing we learn about Jesus, he is soft and kind to this betrayer. But Judas is so angry. I, I can just imagine him saying, rebuke me, will he? Well, I got a plan. And he marches a mile and a half at night to go knock on these guys' doors. What will you give me? We'll give you 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. This is not a lot of money. But the greedy, deceptive, angry Judas who had been concocting this plan for a while was finally pushed over the edge that this crummy guy who is not brave and bold enough to declare himself a political messiah, he's cowering here in this little room. I'm going to go tell these guys where he is and get my pound of flesh. You ever wonder that? Why did, why did Judas do this? What, why did he do this? Obviously, he was the chosen instrument of, of God. Why did he do this? There's a lot of suggestions. I asked my family last night just as a, before we were eating, why do you think he did this? And they gave a couple of the answers. Was it just the money? Was it the 30 pieces of silver? Was it his greed? Maybe. Was he, uh, this anger, was he trying to force Christ's hand? Did he want this political Messiah and says, well, if I bring the enemy right to him, maybe finally he'll expose who he really is? Did he have those intentions? Maybe he was jealous of others. He felt the outsider, uh, like the outsider. Remember, he was from Kerioth and everybody else from Galilee. Maybe it was fear of the inevitable. He knew what was coming. He knew that it was only moments before the Romans would, because he knew the plans that the Jewish scribes were concocting as well, and, hey, I'm going to step out of that group, and I'll get some money on the side and say, there they are, and I'll kind of escape. Maybe that was the motivation. What eventually drove him to do it, though, is this rebuke by the Lord, and this is what is true of hypocrites. When Christ firmly and finally speaks to them through his word, they reject it. I also want to point out to you that this was God's plan from the beginning. There's many prophetic statements, even some that Jesus quote, just for your own study this afternoon, if you wanted to give further attention to this, Psalm 41, verse 9. 
my own familiar friend whom I trusted, who ate my bread. He has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 55, 12 to 14, it is not an enemy who reproached me. Then I could bear it, right? You could handle it if it was some no-name enemy. It is not one who hates me. Then I could hide. But it was you, a man, my equal, my companion, my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and we walked to the house of God in the crowd. Zechariah 11, verse 12 and 13. They weighed out 30 pieces of silver. The Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord. It's all prophetic. Did Judas really have a choice? Was he doomed from birth because of God's sovereign plan? How can we reconcile the truth that this treacherous act was predicted and yet Judas acted of his own volition? We can do it through the words of Christ in Luke 22, 22, when he says, truly the, man, the Son of Man goes at his, at, as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. God is sovereign, but man is responsible. We can never blame God for our circumstances caused us to do a certain thing. Number four, and I want to get through this because there's application we need to make. He is greedy. He is deceptive. He is angry. And this, is, this was the eye-opening one for me. He is hard. He is a hard person. By that I mean he, he has a hardness of heart. After making this deal with the chief priest, when he marches from Bethany to Jerusalem, makes the agreement, and then in Matthew, still open to Matthew 26, 16, and from that time on is when he sought to really look for an opportunity to betray Christ. He's, this is in his mind now. And now the week is going on, and you get to Thursday night when Jesus has sent his disciples ahead to find the room, and they gather in the upper room. You still have the John passage open too, right? I, I kind of shut mine, but did you keep? I hope you kept it open. Flip, it, flip to the John passage. Look ahead to chapter 13, please. Here's the feast, okay? This is, this is a day and a half after this episode with Mary and Judas, okay? So you understand the timeline. Not much time has happened here. If it's Tuesday night and, and Judas goes to the chief priest on Tuesday night, then Wednesday passes and there's a few. This is now Thursday, okay? And there's this is just Ju Judas is thinking about this. Look at verse 1. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from the world to the Father, he loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. And I would say that he even loved Judas. And I'm going to show you two reasons I believe that. Supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, day and a half earlier, or even earlier in the John 6 passage, Jesus, knowing that his father had given him all things into his hands and he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water in the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, including who? What a hard dude. Can you imagine? This guy is a hard guy. He's thinking about how he's going to get this man arrested. I don't know if Judas knew the end. I don't know if they... I, I figure he must have known they were going to kill him. Maybe he thought Jesus was going to overpower him with his political aspirations or whatnot. But Jesus is bending down with a towel wiped around him, doing the work of a servant, and Judas, in a hard heart fashion, rejects that. There's another instance where he demonstrates his hardness. Of course, there's many places where he hears Je Jesus say, one of you is the devil. I mean, Judas never considers that it might be him or never at least gives thought to that. There's times when he says, not all of you believe. He says it 
He says it right here in this passage. Simon, when, uh, in John 13, when Peter complains about the washing, uh, Jesus says, you, you must be washed or you have no part of me. Look at verse 11. He knew who would betray him, and he said, you are not clean. And Judas, again, the hardness there. He doesn't admit that that's him. Later, when Jesus takes that morsel and dips it in the sop, you mentioned that this morning, just a fascinating thought here. Ever wondered what that's all about? In that sop was, was filled with a, like a sauce with herbs and salt and fruit and dates and raisins. It was a dip for your bread. And it was a special thing for the host to take a morsel and dip it in the sop and then give it to the guest of honor. And he gives it to Judas. Now Jesus says, it is the one I give who betrays. He's just washed his feet. He dips that bread. You are the guest of honor. Why doesn't Judas just break down right there? Could he have? Absolutely. Why didn't he break down? He's a hard man. He takes that bread, dips the loaf. Man, he's hard. And hypocrites are hard. Hebrews chapter 6 says it is impossible once you have tasted of the heavenly gift and, and abandoned it, walked away, that you can renew yourself to repentance. And so many people have the privilege and opportunity that Judas has. They're raised in a Christian home. They have a wonderful church family to come to. They have scripture. They have all kinds of apps that teach them about the Bible. They have wonderful privileges and opportunities, and they turn it all, they, they reject it because they're hard. Fifth, that one is astonishing to me. He's a hypocrite. We've already learned that, but his hypocrisy is, is in the Matthew 26 passage. Are we still flipping back and forth? I hope so. Matthew 26 passage, verse 25. In this same moment when he dips that sop and says, one of you is going to betray me. And, you know, all the disciples start saying, Lord, is it I? See it in, uh, let's see, verse 22 of 26 in Matthew. They're exceedingly sorrowful. And they said, Lord, is, they all start saying, Lord, is it I? You know what Judas does? He joins right in with that. He says in verse 25, then Judas, who was betraying him, said, Rabbi, is it I? Even to the last minute, he's playing the, he's playing the part. He's acting. Why didn't he just get up and say, if he was bold and brave, he said, you're right, it's me, and I'm out of here. He plays the part with the other people. John and Peter, is it I, is it me? Judas, is it I? What a hypocrite. He played it so well that when he left the room, all the disciples thought, oh, he must be going to buy something else for the supper. Even though Jesus was like, whoever I give this to is going to betray me, he gives it to Judas, is it I? Judas walks out, oh, we must need more soup. He's so good. And maybe some of us are so good at pretending, at being this hypocrite. Six, notice his spiritual state. He is unclean. He is a devil. He is uncommitted to Christ. I wanted to point this out. Everyone else at the meal, when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, what do they say? What do they say? Say it all out. What do they say? Say it. What do they say? What do they say? What? They say something else before they say, is it I? What do, what do the disciples say? Verse 22, what do the disciples say? We're getting close to it, Cherry. Lord, is it I? And Judas says, Rabbi, is it I? Is it 
See his state? Master, is it me? Lord, good teacher? Couldn't fool. Couldn't fool us there. And seventh, turn ahead to Matthew 27, just a chapter ahead. What is the final thing we learn about him before we make some application? He is unrepentant. He is unrepentant. This is a key. Could Judas have gone out and prayed to God and asked for forgiveness for betraying Jesus? I mean, these are great what-if questions. He's called the son of perdition. He's doomed to destruction. It's in God's sovereignty, he knows that Judas will not repent. But hypothetically, this is not a sin that he could not overcome. This is not a sin that God would not forgive, in my opinion. But he goes out, and he's overcome with remorse. And we say, oh, good, good, maybe he, re- maybe he repented. Look at it. After the arrest and, and Judas with his, I mean, just his hard heart kisses Jesus in the garden. Verse 1, when morning came, 27-1, when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. They got him. They bound him, led him away, and delivered him to Pontius Pilate. And now all of a sudden, Judas, verse 3, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Boy, that sounds great. They said, what is that to us? You see to it. Get lost, pawn. Verse 5, he threw down the piece of silver. It's predicting uh, prediction from Zechariah 12. Uh, and the chief priests uh, bought a field, and Judas went out and hung himself, and his body burst open. We'll talk about that in a second. He was remorseful. The Bible was not written in English. You all understand that. And so to understand what the words really mean, we can't look at an English dictionary. We have to go back and find out what the Greek word is. And it's very important. Because it sounds good. Even his words sound good, but he's still a hypocrite. He's still deceptive. The word is metamelomai. And here's the meaning of it. It has the idea of changing one's mind or purpose after having done something regrettable. Hear that? But it is contrasted with another Greek word, metanoo, which means to repent. Because this word that's used here, to be remorseful, expresses the mere desire, listen carefully, the mere desire that what was done might be undone. It is accompanied with regrets and remorse, but no change of heart. It is an ineffective repentance for which forgiveness of sins is not promised. It means little or nothing more than a dread of the consequence of what one has done. Whereas metanoo, the real word for repentance, means regretting and forsaking the evil by a change of heart. Did you get all that? I'm not trying to be intellectual with you, but you have to understand what the word there means. It means, I wish I hadn't done that because now I'm in a heap of trouble. Not, what have I done against God? That's repentance, and I will change and Move on from this. All, he is not sorry because of his sin. He's sorry because he's been exposed. And it didn't bring out the, the results that he'd hoped for. Maybe this is indicating that he hoped that once Jesus was pressed a little bit by the, by the leaders, that he would come out as the political ruler that Judas really wanted. I don't know. But the consequences were out. All the other 11 knew now. And Judas must be thinking, what have I done? 
he goes and hangs himself in Acts 1, 18 and 19 and tells us his body bursts open. In other words, he's, so, he's such a pathetic figure, he can't even hang himself, right? But the rope must have broken and he fell onto some rocks. And he, The last thing we know about Judas in the Bible is that his entrails gushed out. Acts 1, 18. When we went through our study in the Gospel of Mark, we talked about the different types of people who are connected to Christ. And one of the people, as we related it to Judas, was that they were a connected fraud. I won't go over all of them, I just want to finish. A connected fraud. They might emotionally invest in Jesus, mentally invest in Jesus, and even outwardly look like they are investing in Jesus, but that's it. How can you know for sure that you are not a Judas? There are Judases in every age and at every church. They have opportunities. They have love expressed to them, even love like Christ expressed to Judas in the upper room. They have the blessings of Christ. They have the promptings of the scripture or of sermons like we've had today. They've had urgings, yet they are stuck in their web of deceit and hypocrisy and their hardened hearts are growing rock solid against Christ. Is that you? This is a burden. This is a message that weighs heavily on me today. Sometimes messages are encouraging and uplifting, and this is a fearful one. Lest there be any one of us in this room who don't hear this warning and are stuck in our hypocrisy. Ask yourself these questions. What are you trusting in at this very moment for your eternal destiny? What are you trusting in at this very moment for eternal life? Do you think God is going to approve you because of your good works, baptism, or religious heritage? Christ is the only way to heaven. If you come to Christ for any other reason, as Judas did, you are not a believer. You are not a follower of him. And secondly, is Christ the Lord of your life? I think we noticed it there in the Matthew passage when the rest of them call him rabbi. Excuse me, the rest of them call him Lord and Judas calls him rabbi. I had a fantastic conversation with a person at the funeral yesterday. Before the funeral even happened, uh, uh, we were blessed to uh, have a, a family in here who's many are un- don't know the Lord. And a man came up to me and was talking to me in depth about it before the service even and said he'd read the Bible many, many times. And uh, that he was trying to, uh, he appreciated the teachings of Jesus and he, he just didn't know and and I said, well, what, I- what is your opinion of Christ? What do you really think of Jesus? Well, he's real, just what he said was right on, you know, treat others right, golden rule, all that stuff. That's not, that's, that's not it. That, that Christ is not a moral teacher or a good example. He is the Lord, the ruler, the sovereign, the Savior. Are you just a fan of Jesus, curious about him, or is he the Lord of your life? Remember what we said about true believers of Jesus. They will obey. They prove their love of Jesus by obedience. You cannot just say you're a Christian. Hypocrites say all the right things, but they don't back it up with actions. Are you consumed with following him and obeying all that he said? It's so important for us to take the time this morning to consider, am I a deceiver? Am I a hypocrite? Or am I really, in truth, connected to Jesus? I believe there are people who have lived and died as hypocrites and probably we've stood at their caskets thinking they're believers and maybe they've gone on into hell. I can't say who or, but I got to believe that's true, that some people are so good at it that they go to their grave pretending. This is a fantastic statement. I mean, I don't 
don't mean that it's good. I mean it's thought-provoking. Often a life that is lived in the face of an unclouded sun, we're talking about the blessings and joys of Christ, might still end in a night of despair. Be sure you're not a hypocrite. Master, make us sincere. Let's pray.